Hello and welcome to the Low Tech Lecture Series. The following is an unedited lecture of a topic tangential to the Low Technology Institute. The ideas expressed are those of the speaker. We hope you find it informative and entertaining. As it is unedited, audio quality varies. Stay tuned after the lecture for information about the Low Technology Institute and its other offerings, or find us at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. Thanks and enjoy. This lecture series is a recording of the class Archaeology in the Prehistoric World from the spring semester of 2017, taught by Scott Johnson. So, let's uh, pick up where we left off. We finished up relative dating last time, where we we're talking about putting things in relative order that uh, may or may not have chronological linear time designations like years or months. Uh, Today we're going to talk about absolute dating. Absolute dating uh, sounds like an ad campaign for absolute vodka or something. Um, but what we're referring to is uh, dating something in finite time, in linear time. So putting a year on it, putting an era on it with a defined range of dates. Now these are slightly different. Uh, there's a lot more science involved in these. Uh, not that you know, pollen dating or fauna dating before didn't have some scientific background. Absolute dating is very heavily science-based. Um, so for each of these, you'll have to know the range of effective use. For example, dendrochronology, which we're going to talk about, tree ring dating only goes back seven or 8,000 years, while carbon dating goes back 80,000, oh, excuse me, yeah, 80,000 years. So it's 10 times longer, right? So know the range of effective use. Know what type of material is used, and we'll talk about that. Dendrochronology uses wood. Carbon dating uses carbon, so often they're fairly straightforward. The zero point refers to, most of these are kind of like ticking stopwatches, which is kind of what we have going on here. The zero point is when that stopwatch starts. For the most part, this will help us date, um, date uh, the phenomena we're looking at. This will become apparent once we get into the first one, you'll say, oh, zero point, I got it. And then the process used to understand how it works. Some of them are really simple. Count up the tree rings. Some of them are a little more complicated, like count the number of carbon atoms of different types of carbon, and then calculate how many were there originally and how fast they decayed. Right, so a little more complicated. And then each one has pros, cons, and limitations. So we'll get into those for each one of these. If you feel I neglect to mention one of these five things, for each of the methods, um, call out and say, hey, wait a minute, bozo. Okay. Um, so the first, we're going to split absolute dating into two, or really three categories, but really there's mainly two, non-radiometric and radiometric dating. Radiometric dating uh, are things that use radiometric decay or um, kind of like nuclear decay. Non-radiometric are things that don't. So the first one, pretty straightforward, calendar, calendrical dating. We've already been introduced to this when I showed you those coins in the different layers and things like that. Anything with a date on it can be a type of calendrical dating, right? Um, when I was a kid, my uh, best friend in the neighborhood lived on the old farmhouse that used to be the farmhouse for the whole neighborhood before. It was made into more of a residential street, and there was this old chicken coop. And we figured out when the chicken coop was from because the inside was insulated with newspaper. That was a type of calendrical dating. Uh, dates have a, the range would be about uh, 3000 BCE. We don't really expect to see dates from before 
3000 BCE because writing didn't exist, so it's unlikely we're going to see dates. Although they probably had some way to mark the passage of time, they just didn't record it. These are going to vary by culture. Uh, over here on the left, we have a picture of what's called a Maya stela, which is a, um, a stone monument with a calendar date carved in the side of it. If you're interested in learning about how to read Maya hieroglyphics, you can check out my book, Translating Maya Hieroglyphics by Scott Johnson. Uh -huh. Don't you, you know, it will occur on no test. But if you're interested, that's something I enjoy. Anyway, um, and then we have our own uh, uh, Western or, um, well, it was a Julian calendar, now it's a Gregorian calendar. Um, there's uh, Hindu, Greek, Chinese, Egyptian, and many other ancient cultures with their own calendars. So you'd have to know the calendar and how it relates to ours if you want to put things in order. For example, the Maya calendar, there is still debate about how to line it up with our calendar. Uh, we have a pretty good idea. We've got it down to between one, it's either one day or the next, and they're only two days apart, so it's pretty close. Uh, but it's not, nobody's 100% satisfied, but there you go. Remember, though, that just because you have a, a calendrical date doesn't necessarily mean that is the date. That, like, if you died on the way home and were buried in a snowbank and then, you know, got buried underground, uh, and you had coins in your pocket and they find you 100 years later, they're not going to assume, let's say you have a brand new coin, okay, 2017, great, but you probably have a lot of coins from, like, nine, uh, 1999 or 2005, right? So you have to assess that situation sometimes, like if it's part of a building that was built and it says erected uh, 1938, well, you can kind of take home when that building was built. Otherwise, you can't. Uh, think about, say, the, uh, the monument, uh, the Vietnam Monument in Washington. It has a whole bunch of dates on it of when people died, but that's not when the monument was built. Historical dating. Um, sometimes there are cultures that have calendars in writing. And they are talking about or recording events in other cultures. Um, and so they will say, oh, those uh, German tribes north of us, if this were a Roman historian, just um, elected, I guess would be the wrong word, selected a new ruler, and his name is, what's his face? Schwertfeger, the, the great, right? So, uh, and then the Romans would be recording something that happened somewhere else. That would be one way that we could get at the date of when that um, famous chieftain was uh, elected or uh, selected, right? So historical dating is usually uh, a culture that has uh, a time uh, calendar and then records events. Kind of obvious. <laughs> it's kind of an obvious one. Dendrochronology. Dendrochronology is also known by its more common name, uh, tree ring dating. Dendrochronology. So dendro. I believe from the Greek for tree or root, um, and then chronology, time, chronos. So we, I'm sure, all are aware that every year uh, deciduous trees and others as well, um, uh, fir trees also, basically uh, trees in latitudes with seasonality have growth rings. They grow very quickly in the spring and summer and then grow much more slowly in the winter and fall, if at all. And this creates these characteristic rings, and we all know that each ring is one year. So if you cut down a tree, you can count how many rings are and see how old that tree is. Okay, um, I can see why that would get us back, say, you know, a couple hundred years if you have a fairly big tree. But we have uh, linked up 
sequences of uh, tree rings to go back 8,000 years in some locations like the American Southwest and Scandinavia. Now, how this works is that tree rings are not, the, the width of tree rings are variable. They grow more or less depending on how good or bad the environment is for that tree that year. Wet years um, with a lot of you know, good growing season uh, would likely uh, account for a larger tree ring and maybe a drought year or a really short growing year for some reason would account for a shorter ring. And that sequence is kind of like a barcode. It gives a unique sequence of fat, skinny, fat, skinny, fat, 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 skinny, skinny, fat, medium, whatever, rings over time. Now if we have one tree that was cut down, say, today, and it goes back 75 years, those tree ring, that tree ring sequence from the last, or from the early half of that tree's life are going to match up with tree rings from other trees that lived at that time. Because they're all, as long as it's from the same area, they're all experiencing the same climactic conditions. And so uh, we're able to link them up in a mm, kind of puzzle type way. I actually have uh, an example of this that we're going to do and we're going to I have a whole bunch of tiny pieces of paper I cut out and then you link up these sequences um, and then you count them back and you can figure out when something was built. So I'll get into that in a second. Uh, and it seems like, come on really that seems like something you'd do in elementary school. But I guarantee you before I I started doing this uh, kind of small lab. This sequencing was kind of not as intuitive to understand as I would have liked. So by having you do it, it's an easy way to get attendance participation points. And it's also a very easy uh, way to, to put this together, even if it already seems clear to you. It'll be extra clear soon. OK, so great. Let's say you have um, a ruin here. This is from the American Southwest. And you go out with your very special dendrochronological coring rig and you tap your hollow tube into this uh, piece of wood and you pull out a sequence, then what do you do? You take it back with you to a lab and uh, put it under not a full microscope microscope but a, uh, certainly something with good magnification and you measure very carefully how wide each one of those um, rings is. And then you put that, you convert that into numbers like, you know, point, point 0.2 millimeters, point 0.3 millimeters, point 0.2 millimeters, point 0.1 millimeters. And you put that sequence into a database and you look for the same sequence. And you have basically in the regions that have this, you have a very long sequence, sequence starting today and going back, if you're lucky, 8,000 years. And hopefully, you know, that string of eight different widths or 20 different widths or whatever you have is going to match up somewhere and then that can give you the exact year that that tree was um, started to grow and then was chopped down. Which is great because then in theory you could say okay this is dated to 867 and it's accurate to the year. 867 so this building must have been built in 867. Not so fast. Does anyone see a problem with why you can't just take the date at face value. Yeah. 
Correct. Uh, yeah, you might have chopped it down last year and left it uh, behind your house or five years ago and waited. You knew maybe you had you knew you had a beam cracking. You're like, I know I'm going to need one. I'm going to be up in the forest anyway. I'll bring it down, and then the beam doesn't crack, and it's sitting there for years and years and years before you put it in. Sure. Or it's your great-grandfather's house, and then you repair it 20 years after it was first built. Well, you know, it's not going to date the site. It only dates that piece of wood. Similarly, or I guess in reverse, you could tear down an old building and build a new one reusing the materials. So if this was dated to 867 and it was, had been used in a house previously and, that was, and it was cut down 867 to build that tree and then 20 years later you pull it out because it's so dry it's still in good shape and in 887 you build a new house with it, the date's not right. So you can't even use TPQ or TAQ really. Um, often people will have to get at least some new wood though. So if you were able to sample all of the wood you'd very likely come up with something, a uh, graph where you'd have a whole bunch of, you know, a slow, a lot of trees from years and years earlier, and then as you approach the actual date, you'd get more trees because usually people will at least cut down something to build their new house, but not always. So dendrochronology is a good one. Um, obviously, this uh, is only available in some regions where wood is well-preserved, uh, which is not all of them, and also, it has to be from a really well-known species, like in the southwest and in uh, Scandinavia, they use fir trees and other types of, um, yeah, fir trees mostly, so it wouldn't work as well with deciduous trees unless you have a deciduous um, track as well. Varv dating was invented in Sweden in the 1800s. Um, a varv is very similar to a um, pond core, however, varves are like tree rings. They um, accrete or grow at one layer each year uh, because of seasonal weather conditions that allow erosion during certain parts of the year but not others. And so you can put a, um, a core down and you can get these varves out. Although varv dating really doesn't really give you uh, dates for features or anything because it usually just dates the bottom of the pond but it can give you other information like uh, when, did, uh, when did agriculture move into this area? You can see because you can count the varves down and then you can uh, do pollen analysis to see when the domesticates show up. It's more often used for climatological reconstruction rather than specific human um, buildings or things like that. Archaeomagnetic dating is what I, what I find interesting about the last four of these are when I first heard about it, I'm like, who figured this out? Like, what archaeologist was like, I know how to figure out how old this is. Let's use the wandering of the North Pole as a dating method. So, how archaeomagnetic dating works is in clay or other soil that has a lot of iron, so very red clay usually, uh, there's loading iron, and that iron just kind of doesn't have a orientation of uh, its magnetic field. It's just kind of free-floating because it's probably been washed in by some sort of water action, right? So it's kind of all jumbled. When you light a fire over that clay 
and it gets past the Curie point, which is, I think, uh, I'll look it up because I don't want to give you the wrong one, um, between 650 and 700 degrees, between 600 and 750 degrees Celsius, 650 to 700 Celsius, all of the electromag or the magnetic fields of these little bits of iron, like microscopic small bits of iron, will all line up and point north and south, I guess, right? So they line up along the Earth's current magnetic field. Um, some of you may already know this, but the Earth's magnetic field wanders. So if you've ever used a compass and you've had to use, um, oh shoot, what's it called? It doesn't point directly north. The um, why oh, am I blanking on that word? Any hikers here? Um, the delinea uh, declination. So the, north, the magnetic north pole has wandered. This is kind of hard to see, but uh, here's Hudson Bay. Here's um, uh, Greenland, Scandinavia, Russia, Alaska, right? So uh, a thousand years ago, the magnetic north pole was over uh, northern Russia. And then it wandered over through Western, nope, sorry, Eastern Russia, and then back kind of through the geographic North Pole over Greenland and back up through the Baffin Island areas, and then now it's kind of circling back. So that wandering is really useful for archaeologists if they can get a very expensive and um, touchy piece of equipment to measure what what the orientation of this magnetic field is, they can reconstruct where the North Pole was at that time and then get a general date, which is pretty cool. I'd like to meet the guy who figured, or a gal who figured that out because that's just nuts. So just to illustrate this a little more clearly, let's say a thousand years ago, here's where the North, magnetic North Pole is. And I make a fire right here. And so it's gonna align my magnetic field along the current one. And then over time, the North Pole wanders over here. And now here's the magnetic north. Well, I come with my special uh, measuring device, and I can see the degree difference between where it is now and where it was. And then I can calculate where, what approximately, it's not super accurate, uh, but it goes back. Uh, Thousands and thousands of years. Uh, the range for this one, what's the range? It's really far. It's oh, million, uh, a million years. Uh, well, okay, four thousand is most. It's going to be accurate within four thousand. Although we do have some archaeomagnetic signatures that go back almost a million years. So four thousand for the good dates, and after that, it's pretty wild. But it still kind of gets you in the ballpark. And the reason for that is what's called the geomagnetic reversal dating. Does anyone know what geomagnetic reversal is? Yeah. Uh, the Earth's polarity has switched like north and south. Yeah. Uh, happens every about thousand years. And yeah. Iron band formations in the mid-Atlantic Right. Are you you're in geology? Yeah. Awesome. Yes. Uh, so it goes. I have the actual dating here. Yes, so it goes uh, every, what's the bracket? So the most recent reversal was 780,000 years ago. And they are supposed to flip. I forget what the actual thing is, but I know that we're well past the likelihood of the north and south polarity flipping, which 
If you want to talk about an action movie, Y2K, there's nothing. I'm sure the flipping of the poles would, comp oh, I think that's going to be the disaster movie that I want to see. Well, okay. Anyway, so here's what happens. Um, we have our Earth, and it is north-south right now. It's what we call or normal polarity. And at the center, what we're talking about here, the mid-Atlantic uh, mid spreading rift zone. No. Where is it? Mid-Atlantic ridge. Yeah, it's right under Iceland. There's a ridge that, I'm making it straight, where the Earth's uh, crust spreads out from. If you're looking at it from profile view, magma and everything are welling up and creating the ocean crust here, and it spreads out. And this takes thousands and thousands of years, so it's really slow. Anywho, so as it's running across, the same thing is happening where the iron or iron bits or anything that will hold a, uh, an orientation, a magnetic field orientation, uh, will do that because it's above the Curie point because it's molten, and then when it solidifies, it's under the Curie point. So everything, you know, right now, all of these bits are pointing north. But once it flips, as happened in the past, the new stuff will be pointing the other way. And as it spreads out, it makes bands where it's flipped back and forth. And we, like I said, we're due. This goes back like millions, 2.5 million years is the range on this one because that's how old the oldest Earth's crust is, 2.5 million years. And so we're talking about you know, uh, evolutionary time. We're talking about you know, homo habilis and things like that. And so when people are dating um, tuft, uh, volcanic tuft, or other molten uh, things that have covered, let's say we have a, a body of some sort of uh, human ancestor and we don't know what year they were, but they were covered by a volcanic layer that has reverse polarity, well, that narrows it down because we know how fast that Earth's uh, uh, ridge, the, God, why am I blanking on that name? The Mid-Atlantic Spreading, uh, not Spreading Ridge, Mid-Atlantic, oh. anyway, uh, this ridge, we can date where it's reversed and where it's regular. And so by knowing that it's a reversed polarity over this guy, we have to know that it comes before that. Right? So it's, it's not very accurate. We're talking hundreds of thousands of years, but sometimes that's enough when we're dealing with, you know, 2.5 million years ago. Again, clever people. Obsidian hydration is a little more straightforward. Obsidian is volcanic glass. It is silica that's been heated usually in a volcano or some other geothermal way to the melting point, and then it solidifies as a big chunk of molten glass. Well, I guess it solidifies. It's no longer molten. Obsidian is a very popular um, type of material used for uh, carving blades or what are called eccentrics um, or arrowheads. It's very sharp. It's glass, right? So the neat thing about um, obsidian is that it is semi-permeable. It's like, have you ever had a hard cheese that sat in your fridge for too long and uh, you didn't put it in saran wrap because... You put it away, you weren't paying attention. So if here's a cross-section of your cheese and like the outer, I don't know, half an inch or so has gotten kind of like hard and like, 
not edible, not in a good hard cheese, but and, you know, here's still good, but this outer rind has gotten kind of dried out. It's almost what's happening with obsidian hydration, except instead of giving out liquid, it's absorbing liquid because there's no liquid in it when it first is um, solidified, right? It's molten silica. It's too hot to hold any water. All the water's out. So then when you crack it to make these different things, you expose that super dry uh, area to the humidity of the air, and it starts to absorb um, hydration. And it creates, much like the cheese, it creates a rind, and you can measure how deep that rind is and get an approximate uh, age for how long ago it was first exposed to the atmosphere. Kind of neat. And they do this through uh, a cross-section. Um, they'll cut with a very sharp and fine blade out a sample and make a very thin um, slide that you can look at under a microscope. And then they measure the distance, like right here or right here. Kind of neat one. I, I like that one. Uh, the range is about 10,000 years. Some people have argued they can use it back to 120,000 years, but 10, 000, within 10,000 years it's more preferable. Oh, amino acid racemization. So, uh, amino acids exist in your bones, and they decay over time. Um, there are, oh, it's this whole thing with, I don't like amino acid racemization because I can't explain it very well. It's not, to me, it's not very intuitive. There are different or, or, orientations of amino acids, and when you look at them through polarized light, you can count how many are one way and how many are the other. Once people die, these begin to flip. And you can measure how many have flipped and, in theory, figure out how long people have been dead. I, uh, I'm not going to really get too much into it. I don't like it. I can't explain it very well. Um, it can go back 100,000 years. It uses bones. And the zero point is when someone dies. I haven't been explicitly saying the zero points, but um, the zero points for, say, um, archaeomagnetic dating is when it hits the Curie point, right? Obsidian hydration is when it gets cracked open. Amino acid racemization is when the thing dies. Dendrochronology is when the um, tree is chopped down, right? Chlorine 36 dating is similar to obsidian hydration dating, except instead of using small bits of obsidian that people make into tools, they use cliff faces. And uh, chlorine 36 is a when, um, when a rock face is first exposed to the elements, you know, before it's part of this giant mountain or whatever, and they take off a face, and when that fresh face is exposed, um, it is bombarded, right, with all kinds of radiation. Um, chlorine 36 accumulates when, um, when that face is exposed. Right? Radiation comes in, and chlorine 36 starts accumulating. And the more chlorine 36 you have, the longer it's been exposed. And so this is useful for dating things like um, carvings on rocks. It's not great. Um, can go back more than 100,000 years. Doesn't really give you the date that the carving was made in many cases. It usually gives you when is that rock face exposed, and then the carving or drawing some, happens sometime after that. It's not like people are there like 
breaking down a whole cliff face to get a fresh cliff face to do their drawings on. No, they're just using what's exposed. So gives you a uh, TPQ. All right, now on to my super duper favorite, radiometric dating. Radiometric dating, ooh. Sorry, I just lost you all by looking at the clock, didn't I? Hmm, do I want to leave? But I have my, okay, I'm going to explain the basic principle of radiometric dating today, and then we'll get into the specific ones next time. Because I have my visual aid here. I had to drive today, so I, good day to bring my visual aid. So, all radiometric dating is based on the idea of um, isotopic decay. What does that mean? There are different flavors of um, elements. So usually we have carbon-12. Um, carbon-12 is the vast majority of all carbon. In the, uh, well, I, I was going to say universe, but since we haven't tested what carbon is like on other planets as much, I'm going to say on Earth. <laughs> it's the vast majority of carbon. Uh, some astrophysicists can probably tell you whether or not that's the same all over the universe. I don't know. Don't care. I'm not an archaeologist outside of this Earth. Okay, so uh, carbon-14 has uh, was a new uh, carbon-14 has extra, for example, uh, neutrons. Neutrons? Neutrons. Yeah. I want to make sure I'm telling you the right thing, because I'm pretty sure it's neutrons. Yep. It has eight neutrons instead of six. Good. Um, so, right, if we have our model of the atom, it's got the electrons and the protons and the neutrons. Uh, the neutrons are neutral, so it doesn't mess up the, um, the electrical balance of the thing, but it's just extra heavy. Okay, so it's just a different flavor, and what is a very small rate um, for every one atom, excuse me, yeah, for every one atom of carbon-14, there is, uh, oh, I can't, what is that number? A million millions. Is that trillion? Yeah, a trillion carbon-12 atoms. So they're very rare, but they exist. So that's just... Um, a different flavor of the atom. And why is that important for us? Well, it's an unstable atom. Carbon-12 is stable. Carbon-14 is not. And over time, some of them will decay. Those extra uh, neutrons pop out. So if we know how fast that happens, and we can count how many of each, I'll be right with you, um, we can figure out how long it's been decaying. Yes, question? It shoots out at a fairly constant rate, about half, about half, half of the number of carbon-14 atoms, in this case carbon-14, but it works for all the radiometric ones, just with different flavors of, of uh, elements, what's called a half-life. Half of the radio, uh, radioactive material will decay in one half-life. Right, half decays in one half-life. That's where it comes from. So if we ha start out with 100% of our carbon-14, or let's say in this case water in this drippy thing I made, we start out with 100% of that radioactive, radioactive yeah, uh, element. Over one half-life, it gets down to 50%. And the next half-life, so another half-life, so uh, with carbon dating, it's like 5,700 years. Um, sorry. So this is number two half-life. We go down to 
because that's half of what was there, 25%. And then we go on to the third half-life. And we go down to 12.5. And you keep going down and down and down. You can usually go out to about 10 half-lives. After that, the change is so small that we can't really detect it very well, depending on the materials you have. So if, let me finish my tea so I can use this bowl. To, so to illustrate this, um, I have here a uh, bottle with a top on it uh, that is dripping. And we know that at one point it had uh, full, it had all this water up in there. So what we need to know are two things. How much did it start with? How much is there now? And then we also need to know the half-life. If we know those three things, we can say when I turn that over and it started dripping. Okay. So, and when we were talking about uh, radiometric dating, this, the, the bottle that's dripping or losing its radioactive uh, little friends, this would be the object you're dating. And then this would be like the atmosphere or wherever it's dissipating out into or turning into daughter. Sometimes um, there's different ways to get these two things start now and half-life, those three items. Oops, before I fall over. Um, there's different ways to get them. And so this model works for all of them. So if we very carefully, without contaminating our, I'm not going to try and make sure it doesn't drip too much. Ah, stop dripping. I dripped a little. OK. So um, I've teared my measuring container. And we can measure, boop. So 70, 79, 79 grams have come out. So we know 79 grams plus whatever's in there, um, which I'm going to have to re-tear. I don't know if it's all going to fit in one. I might have to drink some of this. Gross. That's 416. And then, see? Ugh. I don't really want to like slam this, but I'm going to have to. Actually, why don't I just tear it? OK, that's 416. Now I tear it so it's 0. And what was left? 99. All right. So uh, now. Right? What I just measured out of that bottle was 515 grams. That's what we have now. What had come out was 79 grams. So we can add these together. Maybe um, 4, 8, 9. So it started out with 594 grams. So we've lost, like I said, 79 grams. So we have two out of the three things we need to know. Now we need to know the half-life. I know that a drop, it takes about 20 drops to equal one gram. And um, when I was timing it earlier, it was something like a drop every 20 seconds. So we need to know the rate. So every uh, 20 seconds, it dropped 1 20th. Of, uh, of a gram.
That doesn't make any sense, Scott. Um, sorry, so it, uh, in a minute it dropped three. Three. Stupid math. Uh, da, 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 da. Most anthropologists are like not math people. And it's embarrassing because I kind of am a math person, usually. Um, so if it's uh, uh, 20 drops equal one gram, and it was uh, three drops per second, or three drops per minute, um, then that would be just under seven um, minutes for a gram. Nope. There we go. So 6.66 uh, uh, grams per minute. No, minutes per gram, sorry. And then if it's 79 grams, that's the difference. That's what's dropped out, right? And if it's 6.66 uh, 6 minutes per gram, then we need, it's not going to let me do it, is it? Um, 79 grams times point, oops, uh, 0.66 minutes. That's 526 minutes which is divided by 60 to get hours, so 8.77 hours ago, I flipped it over. Obviously, I cheated, I squared it somehow for the purposes of this. That's kind of the same thing we're trying to measure here, is if we know the half-life, which is kind of like the drip rate, and we know what's there now, and what we started with, we should be able to figure out how long did it take for that amount to come out of the parent material. I hope that didn't make it more confusing. Hopefully it'll be less confusing uh, when we get to talk specifically about carbon dating and things like that. But basically we're looking at a parent material that is decaying or dripping. We measure how fast that drip happens. We measure how much has dripped. We use that rate to figure out how long ago it started decaying or dripping. That's the plan. So we'll get into specifics and put actual numbers to this uh, next time. Thanks for listening to this low-tech lecture. Find out more by visiting our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. There you'll find the low-tech podcast, our blog, our event calendar, and other things going on around the Institute. You can subscribe to this lecture or our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and many other podcasting apps. The background music is Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2 in C minor and is in the public domain. This podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Share Like License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you provide credit.